Good morning, everybody. It's, it's good to be back. It, I, apparently, if I go away for one weekend, you guys redecorate without me, apparently. So this is nice. It, I just hope if there's anyone new visiting with us today, you understand, again, we are having vacation Bible school next week. We are not some type of uh, space cult waiting for a spaceship following a comet. Uh, it's also kind of nice having the walls up today because everyone's packed in a little bit closer. I look forward to the day when we can have those wings open and still have things feel like everyone is sitting this close together. Uh, it can make things a little bit more awkward for me because I don't know if you've noticed this or not, though. I, I try to make eye contact, you know, across the room as I'm speaking, but if I'm ever making a very poignant poignant point, right? Let's say I'm talking about lustfulness. All right, I'm going to be very careful. I'm not just going to make eye contact with Trevor while I'm talking about lustfulness because that could cause a fight. Okay, so I usually try to find an empty seat. It's going to be harder for me to find that empty seat to make eye contact with if I have to make any of those points today. So uh, husbands or wives out there, give grace today. Um, are there any amazing race fans here? There's got to be more than a couple of you because this is a very long-running, enduring reality game show. Uh, it airs on CBS, and according to Google, it's entering its 34th season. Uh, in terms of television programming, lasting 34 seasons is amazing endurance. Uh, people in our generation we're very quick usually to jump to something new. It's very hard for something to keep our attention for season after season, to keep the audience coming back so that the advertisers are going to want to continue to dump money into a television show. But for some reason, this, again, reality game show where two contestants literally travel the world solving puzzles, finding clues, it's captured the imagination of people uh, enough to a point that it's been able to sustain all of this time. Uh, if you win The Amazing Race, you receive a life-changing prize of $1 million. I did think to myself, though, a million dollars 34 seasons ago was probably worth a lot more than that million dollar prize is today, so they might actually want to adjust that a little bit. Yeah, the groceries are more expensive. Now, what really struck me, though, as I was reading the 17th chapter of Acts a few weeks ago, is I was thinking of how incredible and how epic Paul's travels have been that we've just looked at just here in, in the middle of Acts. We, we've documented them pretty well so far. We've seen Paul travel again from Damascus to Jerusalem and Jerusalem to Turkey and Turkey to Greece, and, and he's had many stops in between these adventures. Paul's travels, Paul's race has been very amazing, but, but Paul's race has come at a cost to him, right? There was no million-dollar prize waiting for Paul. What was waiting for Paul on his amazing race was, was torture and imprisonment. It was being run out of town time and time again. I think back just two weeks ago when I was last here with you and we looked at what happened to Paul when he was in Philippi. It would make sense after we saw his imprisonment and his torture that now as we open up the 17th chapter of Acts that Paul should be due for some rest and relaxation. Right? Paul should be due for a couple things to break his way. To maybe be able to settle down for a little bit and see something to fruition. But what we're going to continue to see today and in Paul's entire life is that Paul is a rolling stone. As chapter 16 of Acts closes... 
Paul gets vindication from the the magistrates uh, in Philippi who wrongly detained him, who ordered him to be tortured. But even getting that vindication hanging around Philippi any longer, it, it really does not seem like a good idea. So as chapter 16 ends, we see Paul stop and he visits an old friend, or I guess it's still a new friend, but this woman who we met a few weeks back, Lydia. He goes and he visits his friend Lydia. He encourages her. He also encourages some of the other new converts that have been made in this city in the short time that Paul was able to share the gospel. And then just like that, poof, Paul leaves Philippi. He's off and he's on the road again, and he's out on his amazing race. As chapter 17 begins, we're going to look at the first three verses here. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now I have another map for you. I know you guys always love my maps so much. I know that for some of you seeing the names of these old cities or hearing me mispronounce the names of some of these old cities, it doesn't necessarily add anything to the story, but it does for me. I've mentioned it to you many times before. I've always been fascinated by by history and, and, and geography of these places. Again, for me, seeing where these places are located, understanding that when Paul says he left Philippi and went to Thessalonica, which, by the way, Thessalonica, another name of a city that you should be familiar with because there's a letter in your New Testament written to the people of this city. But I need to know and I need to be able to visualize again that this is not some trip to the local corner store, that this was a 50-mile-plus journey, very possibly by foot. And I really don't know if this is the right way to do it, but when I write my messages, I try to write them in the same way that I would want someone to talk to me. I try to write them in the same way that I would want someone to teach me. And it's always my hope that what the Lord says to me will usually be what he wants you to see or to hear as well. So yes, just a few more maps today, this one and one more, and I promise that's it. But but Paul leaves Philippi. Right? He, he leaves this town that he was at way up here. He travels through these two smaller towns, which I'm not going to try to pronounce again for you, so don't get excited. And he ends up here, still on his port, on the Aegean Sea called Thessalonica. Thessalonica, again, another large, major port city. But in what we just read, there was something very important, a big difference between Thessalonica and Philippi that we should notice. Uh, the big difference is, is that when Paul arrived in Philippi, there was no synagogue for him to go and for him to preach in, for him to teach in. So remember when he met Lydia, he ended up going to that impromptu place of prayer down by the river. But in Thessalonica, there, there is no such problem. It, it tells us that there was a synagogue and it says that for three straight Sabbath days, so basically for three weeks in a row, that Paul shows up and he preaches the gospel with Silas by his side. He, he goes there and he argues and he debates with, with, with the Jews and with the God-fearing Gentiles. It says that he uses the scriptures, he uses the Old Testament to explain that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And, and some of the men, some of the men in the synagogue that heard Paul's, Paul speak, I should say, that they were persuaded to believe. 
Verse 4, if you continue on, also tells you that some of the leading women of the city, that they believed as well. And it sounds like Paul's finally getting that rest and relaxation, isn't he? Everything sounds like it's perfect and going well in Paul's world, right? We should just stop reading there and leave Paul where he is. Surely all of the bad experiences that he had in Philippi, surely Paul was now due to get some better treatment here in Thessalonica. But sadly, no. Again, the authorities are alerted to Paul's presence. Paul is, is once again, he's labeled as a troublemaker. And it just it seems like wherever Paul goes with this gospel, the same pattern we see is that some are going to believe but most won't, and that his message of love and grace, most people misinterpret it and they see it as a threat, a threat to their, their status quo of how they've always done things. What, what it says is that wherever Paul goes, the world gets turned upside down. So again, under duress, just as he was before, Paul is forced to flee. And in verse 10, it says he, he flees to this place called Berea. It's either Berea or Berea, whether I guess you're talking about the town in Kentucky or the town in Greece. But Berea, however you want to say it, this is now a smaller town. Uh, it's a town that's away from the coastline, and it's actually a while off the main road as well. So perhaps now, perhaps now Paul's going to try his, his same thing in a smaller town, and perhaps now it's finally going to work for him. Maybe now his message is going to be heard and it's going to be understood without being twisted and manipulated just to stir people up against him. And again, as it always does, things start off going so well for Paul in Berea. Verse 11 says that the Jews that were in Berea, that they were more noble than the Jews that were in Thessalonica. This just means that they were more eager to listen. They were more eager to learn. Uh, perhaps how you can best understand saying that they were more noble is, is that the people of Berea, they were curious. Day after day, it says, they went and they studied the scripture with Paul. And if I try to put myself in Paul's sandals, I just think of how wonderful it must have felt. How wonderful it must have been for Paul who has given everything over for Christ, who, who's completely sold out to the gospel, who literally puts God's will even above his own well-being, Berea must have felt like such a, a reprieve from Philippi and Thessalonica. But sadly, verse 13 starts with my favorite word. A verse can start with but. Verse 13 says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It's 2023. Am I safe to assume that everyone here, no matter what generation you're from, are you familiar with the term hater? If someone's being a hater, do you know what that means? A lot of, okay, good. What we just read is, is a really incredible example of hating on someone. These, these men from Thessalonica, they hate Paul. They hate him so much that even after they run him out of their own town, Right, when they've, they've gotten rid of their problem, when they can just go back to their normal life, doing things exactly how they had always done them. Right? The person they hate is long gone. He's several days away, a several days journey in Berea. He poses no threat to them any longer. But they are such haters that they can't even stand the thought of him doing well somewhere else. So they put their lives on hold. They hit the pause button and they travel the dozens and dozens and dozens of miles 
to make sure that Paul and the gospel that he brings, that it will not prosper in the small town of Berea either. So again, Paul's amazing race continues. He moves on again. I think we have another map. Last one, I promise you. But this time now, Paul is back to the sea. He's no longer traveling dozens and dozens of miles by foot. He now finds himself taking a boat from the small town of Berea, again off of the main road, away from the coastline, traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles to the city of Athens. Finally, the name of a city that you could maybe actually point out on a map. You see, Paul's haters had driven him to a place that, very honestly, he probably had no intention of ever going. If if you ask a lot of people, uh, they will tell you that based on Paul's travel pattern, that, that probably what he would have done is continued along this road over to another city whose name I can't pronounce, and he would have hopped on a boat, and he would have been headed to Rome, the, the heart of the Roman Empire. But the people who had come there to to hate on him, to make his life difficult, they had accidentally, or inadvertently, I should say, they had driven him to Athens. They had driven him to maybe the brain, to the mind of the ancient world. You see, Athens was a very special place, right? Athens is known as the birthplace of of modern thought. It's the birthplace of, of modern civilization, And when Paul arrives in Athens, this is what's recorded for us in verses 16 through 21. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, the the them that he's waiting for, that's his, his disciple buddies, right? This little boy band of disciples that he's traveling with. It says, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, And in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of a foreign divinity, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Again, Athens is different. Athens is this place that was simultaneously both ancient and modern. It was a place that embraced its past, but it also considered itself the the, the standard bearer for for learning and for philosophy. The the people who lived in Athens, they valued education. Uh, They valued deep thought. And in the ancient world, what was deemed to be reasonable in Athens... It would become reasonable for for, for people spread all over the Roman Empire. What what they deemed as solid philosophy, let's say, in Athens, it would be deemed reasonable by millions and millions of people. People who would never study philosophy, people who maybe possibly were even illiterate that could never uh, uh, make these decisions for themselves. But if the great thinkers of Athens had debated something and if they had come to a conclusion... For most people in the ancient world, that would have been good enough for them. The people of Athens had many qualities, and they were known for many different things. But if we simplify it, if we break it all down, what we're left with, I think, is this idea that what we just read 
tells us that the people of Athens, that they were curious. And they let their curiosity in all sorts of matters, they let it just kind of flow freely in the public square, whether it was mathematics or philosophy or economics or, or politics. All of these things were debated openly and freely, and what they would say is the pursuit of truth. Curiosity compelled, it says, everyone in the city to continue to want to come together and hear new ideas. And if you know me well enough, when I start saying the word curiosity over and over enough again, there's one simple question that comes to my mind. Why did curiosity kill the cat? You know I love these sayings. I, I, we do this all the time. These things that we always say that we know what they mean, but we have no idea why we say them. Why is it that curiosity kills cats? Uh, so I did a little research for you. You can trace the roots of this phrase all the way back to the times of Shakespeare. Right, it was Shakespeare that uh, wrote that uh, care killed cats. He's saying worry kills cats. This is back in the 1500s or so. It was about 300 years later where we find the first modern printed reference to uh, a curiosity killing cats. In a book of English Proverbs, it actually has the line, curiosity kills cats. And by the time the early 20th century started, this, this saying had become very mainstream. I actually stumbled upon a newspaper article from the Washington Post from March of 1916. It's a brief article. I want to read it to you real quick. Um, it starts the title, Curiosity, you may recall. On the fifth floor of an apartment house at 203 West, 130th Street, lives Miss Mabel Godfrey. When she came to the house about seven months ago, she brought Blackie, a cat of several years' experience of life. The cat seldom left the apartment. He was a hearth cat, not a fence cat, and did not dearly love to sing. In other respects, he was normal and hence curious. Last Tuesday afternoon, when Miss Godfrey was out, Blackie skipped into the great fireplace in a rear room. He had done this many times before, mind you. But he had not climbed up the flue to the chimney. This he did on Tuesday. Blackie there remained perched on top of the screen separating the apartment flue from the main chimney crying for assistance. Miss Godfrey returning tried to induce her pet to come down. If you are ex experienced in felinity, felinity, felinity Sophie, is that a good word? Felinity. You know that Blackie did not come down. On Wednesday, the cat uh, the cat, curiosity unsatisfied, tried to climb higher and fell all the way to the first floor. His cries could still be heard by Miss Godfrey, who to, the effect, who to effect Blackie's rescue communicated with the following departments, the police department, the fire department, the health department, the building department, and the Washington Heights court. Among them all, they came and they lowered a rope to Blackie. But it availed neither the cat nor them anything. Thursday morning, just before noon, a plumber was called and who, he opened the rear wall of the chimney. Blackie was taken out. His fall had injured his back. Ten minutes later, Blackie died. Sad. Not the ending you were expecting, was it? This is why dogs are superior to cats, though, because I've never had a dog climb up the chimney. I just, just saying... And isn't it nice, like there used to be newspaper articles, right? That, if, if there was an article like that in our newspapers today, the comments section would just be filled with, well, you know, people from PETA saying, well, this is why we shouldn't keep animals as pets. You'd have climate activists saying we shouldn't have fireplaces to burn wood anyway. You know, it would just become a whole big debate. You can't just talk about someone's cat anymore. But, but here's 
my conclusion. You see, curiosity in the paws of a cat is dangerous. But curiosity in the hands of a human, a human with pure intentions, is extremely useful. And the men of Athens, the men that stand before Paul right now, if there's anything that we can call them, if there's one way that we could label them, it would be as curious. You see, they, they crave new knowledge. They, they are constantly pursuing truth. They obviously don't all agree on everything, but most of them are willing to hear Paul out. And I should be clear, I've been building up Athens as this utopia, and, and truthfully, it was not, uh, especially to a, a good Jewish boy like Paul. Everywhere he would have turned as he walked through this city, his senses would have been offended. All throughout the city were temples and idols, uh, sexual promiscuity running rampant throughout the city. Again, you see, when I said sexual promiscuity, I looked straight down, so I didn't make eye contact with anybody. Before we keep going, I want you to understand a few things about Athens a little bit better. There's one line here in verse 18 where it says, Paul conversed with both the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Now, not all of us may be familiar with the difference between an Epicurean or a Stoic philosopher. But it says that when Paul talked with these men, some of them called him a babbler. It says others said that he's speaking of a foreign god. And when we unpack this a little bit, we see an amazing juxtaposition to the world that we live in today. Tell me if this sounds familiar. So in Greece, there were these two major schools of thought that, were, that prevailed at the time. There was the, the Epicureans and there was the Stoics. And these men and their, their great minds, they came together. And one of their goals was to, to try to ascertain or to, to reason the things of the gods. Right, they had the same goal. They wanted to understand, was there a higher power out there? And, and whatever the higher powers were, how does it affect our everyday lives? Right? How do we interact with these gods? What are our responsibilities to these gods? It's the same question that really every person from every people group in all of creation has always asked. And you see, the Epicureans, they decided that they believed that, that our world and all of the gods, right, they, they all existed in this long, far away. They, they were apart from each other. They were separated. The gods and man, they had very little interaction. So because of this, that all we could do as humans is just try to live the best that we can, right? What we should basically do is we should try to get the maximum pleasure that we can out of this life while, while still trying to remain peaceful, and respectful. The Stoics, on the other hand, they believed that the, the gods were here with us, that they were in this world, and, and that they actually dwelt within inside of every person. And they believed that this divine power, that it could be understood, that it could be harnessed, that it could be manipulated. So virtue in a person by proxy would come from each individual's own rationality. Whatever they thought would be good, would be good. Does this sound a little familiar? Have you ever heard anyone in our world say, if there even is a God out there, he's so far away. He's not concerned with what's happening to men here on earth right now. We just need to take care of ourselves the best that we can while we're here. Or have you ever heard somebody sound a bit more stoic in thought, saying, hey, just go out there and find your own truth. Be, be faithful to the spirit that is inside you. Just do what is right in your own eyes. Life is short. YOLO. 
But some of these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they hear Paul speaking. And again, some of them say he's a babbler. Doesn't sound like much of an insult to us, but at that time, in that place, that's a great insult. In a culture that values thought and debate above most anything else, saying that someone is tripping over their own words or is unable to form a cohesive argument is a great insult. Some of the others, they're intrigued by what Paul says, and they bring him back to the Areopagus. And in verse 19, out of curiosity, they ask, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And Paul now is about to show the men of Athens that he is not just a babbler. In just a couple moments, we're going to look at Paul's closing statements in this chapter in verses 22 through 32. We're not there yet, but I want you to get your Bibles out or get your apps out. I want you to read this for yourself. It's not going to be up on the screen. If you do not bring a Bible with you, I promise you there's one in the seat in front of you. You take that one out, put your name in it, and take it home with you. It's yours. But what we're going to see and what we should also remember is that just because the men of Athens were men that embraced curiosity, their curiosity still distorted their view of God. Just because they were curious, just because that they would listen, it did not mean that they were just going to accept any old idea that was presented to them. It also did not guarantee Paul that the men of Athens would behave any better than the men of Thessalonica or the men of Philippi did. In fact, Paul probably knew that specifically the one thing that these curious men mentioned of him, where it said that he is a preacher of foreign gods, it was the very same charge the men of Athens brought against the man who is widely considered to be the greatest philosopher of all time and Socrates. It was the same charge uh, be, being a, a teacher of foreign gods that Socrates was convicted of and executed for in the year 399 B.C. See, Athens was a place deeply interested in new thought, but just like anywhere else in the world, proclaiming the name of a new god could always land you in some very deep trouble. So Paul finds himself now standing in this court, the, the Areopagus as they call it. It's this court where for hundreds and hundreds of years, many of the most famous teachers in the world had also stood and had also spoke from. From this place where Paul stood up on this hill, he'd have a view of the marketplace of Athens. Again, another place where ideas had been being exchanged for hundreds and hundreds of years. As he would be speaking to these men, just over his shoulder would stand the Acropolis and all of its temples and all of its glory. And here Paul is, he's standing in front of the educated, the powerful, the doubters, and the curious. And again, we're going to read Paul's entire speech here. Uh, please have your Bibles open. It's not going to be up on the screen because it will be a lot of slides, and I don't want that button to break back there for Kirsten. We're going to start in verse 22. We're going to go all the way through verse 34. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Was a lot of scripture, and I could easily do another 35 minutes just on this speech, but I promise I won't. This is one of probably the most famous speeches that Paul delivers. And, and it is just kind of oozing with the typical Paul boldness, but what we also see in this speech is this incredible example of honestly just how intelligent this man was, how brilliant of an orator he was how he was willing to use the gifts and the talents that his creator graciously bestowed upon him to serve the calling he was giving. And in this moment, Paul does not hold anything back. He, he begins, he appeals to the men of Athens, right? Instead of berating the men of Athens for their ignorance, instead of choosing to be offended by their gratuitous temple worship, by their brazen idolatry, he uses their own existing understanding to point them back to God. He goes to the Epicureans and he specifically says, no, God is not some far off uninvolved deity. He says, God is your creator. He says, God has set everything into motion. He says this, he knows what these Epicurean men already believe. Verse 27, he directly says that God is not far from any one of us. And then he looks to the Stoics and he says to the Stoics, he says, you're not the ones that get to define God. He says, God does not need anything from you. This is not about your inner self or your inner rationalities. Paul goes and he quotes Greek authors. He shows them that he is not just some simple man from some far away place, that he is educated, that he is qualified to have this debate with them. He tells them, he says, God does not dwell in places built by man. And he isn't saying this again to just some, some slack-jawed nobodies from nowhere. He's saying this to the men of Athens boldly. He says this while just over his shoulder stands the Parthenon. He, he says that building is beautiful, right? The architecture is amazing. He says, but you have missed the point completely. Right? Whether it's in the marketplace, 
Whether it's on the floor of the Areopagus, Paul continually points back to one thing over and over, and it's always the resurrection. This courtroom that he stood in, this kind of public forum, this place of debate, while they were big on sharing ideas, there were still ground rules that existed as to what would be debated at this place. And one of the founding principles, the founding rules of this place, it dates all the way back to the time of Socrates. It's one of the principles uh, that, that they say is given by their god, Apollos, when he, he created this place for him. It's that the resurrection of the dead, it's flatly ruled out. Okay, the resurrection of the dead is preposterous and it was not to be debated. This is actually what it says in their written tradition. Again, this is supposed to be the words of Apollo, their God. It says, this is binding, that when a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. And now this strange man from a faraway land, he's standing in the middle of their court, and he is telling them, first off, there is one true God, and he created everything. It says he also set the boundaries for everything that this one true God controls everything, that he is intimately involved in the lives of man, and that Jesus Christ, his son, raised from the dead. Now, not only did he resurrect, was he risen from the dead, but he's also going to come back and he's going to judge mankind. And he says that the only reason that we can have any assurance is specifically because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And when he finished, some men mocked, mocked Paul, just like he is now used to, but some also believed. And then Paul left, and he went to Corinth. His amazing race continued. Again, curiosity is good for people, bad for cats. Because it was the, the men of Athens' curiosity that led them to listen. Right? Not all were going to believe, but most were curious enough to listen. And I don't think that humanity has lost that type of curiosity inside of us. I think it does still exist. I think people are still curious about these big questions, these seemingly unanswerable or unobtainable, I should say, answers. I think that there are still places and there are still forums where we could stand in the town square and we could speak truth through whatever the unknown God of the people of this world would be. You see, the, the problem that exists, though, is that most of us don't have the boldness of Paul. We, we don't have the stomach to handle the fear of, of the probable emotional and maybe even physical beatings that we are going to endure from some Right? We love God. We say we serve Christ. But our line would have been crossed as soon as the first insult was ever thrown our way. Too many of us, we, we see debating our faith for those who are stronger or smarter or braver than us. And I get it. Standing in the public square, even standing up in the social media digital town hall and being bold... I know it's hard to be prepared for every argument that you think is going to be tossed your way. Uh, I just heard, I shouldn't say I just heard it said, but I had heard it said before, and I can't recall from whom, that essentially Christians feel like they have to be an expert in physics and philosophy and biology and geology and archaeology just in order to have an intelligent conversation with an atheist. 
where all the atheist needs is to memorize one Bible verse, remove it from context to make his or her, her point. So because of this, we feel like the deck, we feel like it's stacked against us. And for too many of us, we decide that it's easier to sit out of the debate that is swirling all around us. It is much easier to just sit on the sidelines and remain silent. You see, as Christians, our goal is to imitate Christ. Can I get some head nods for that? Right, this is our goal. We are trying to obtain sanctification. We are trying to be more Christ-like. But I was reminded that it was Paul who wrote in his letter to the next town that he was going to visit... He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So I do. I, I pray that we would all be imitators of Paul so that we can better shine Christ. I pray that we would arm ourselves, so we would train ourselves, so we would be bold enough to go to the places where the curious are still gathering. And that like Paul did, we would tell them that God is real. We would tell them that Jesus defeated the grave. We would warn them that humanity is going to be judged. And we would give them hope by telling them that those who believe will be saved. Uh, way back in Thessalonica, the men there, they accused Paul of being a troublemaker. They went to the magistrates again. And, and if you look at verse 6, they say that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. If you make your way through this world today and you leave it exactly as you found it, or if you come to a new place and you don't turn some things upside down, are you being an effective disciple? Are you imitating Paul? By proxy, are you imitating Christ? Has evil ever saw you coming and said, oh shoot, the party's over because Daniel's here now? Things are about to get messy. Things are about to get turned upside down. Or again, are, are you satisfied to stay sitting on the sidelines, right? Clutching onto your salvation, holding it in your hands, just waiting for your time to run out. See, we need to, to turn things upside down around here. And while we're doing it, we ourselves, we need to remain curious, we need to ask questions. We shouldn't be settling. We shouldn't be satisfied with what always has been just because it always has been. When you read God's Word still, you should be reading it with the curiosity of a child who is seeking new knowledge. You see, because I think it either, was either your curiosity or, or maybe someone in your family tree's curiosity that has brought you to your faith today. It's, it's this curiosity that is built into you by your Creator and whether it's yours or, again, someone down the family tree, it was their curiosity in wondering if there was something more to this life that led you to be here today. And I, I know that there's also some people that will hear me say that and will say, Daniel, please don't tell people to be curious, especially our young people. Please don't tell them to be curious because if they're curious, they're going to hear all kinds of crazy things and they're going to get led astray. You see, but my call for curiosity, what comes attached to it, is a caveat. I want you to remain curious, but I want you to always come back to God's Word. Right? We, we can't be afraid to hear a new idea. We, we can't be afraid to even look at something from a new angle. But what's going to keep us from being led astray in our curiosity is going to be what is it that we are anchored to. 
right? When your curiosity naturally draws you to a new place or presents you with a new point of view, you must ask yourself, right? It's not about how do I feel about this. It, it should always come back to what does God's word say about this. So church, I pray that we will stay curious and I pray that we will turn the world upside down while we do so. Pray with me.